0: all right that's part five of the final part the the it
1: is part five yeah right
0: yeah of the the cost of convenience um what i'm kind of calling the communist solution semicolon communism isn't actually the solution yeah in our previous episodes, we discussed the history of shopping, we discussed the history of convenience stores, specifically, we discussed the history of the founder of Plant Pantry, and in our last episode, we described some of a lot of what they went through.
1: Oh, well, the, and when a lot of the workers at Planet Pantry. Yeah, a lot of the workers, specifically,
0: yeah. uh, that there were uh, an exorbitant number of robberies, which were somebody coming in with a weapon. And holding you up to take – not necessarily money. People would take – there's one great story about a dude who took, like, $500 worth of, like, $1965 of cigarettes. So Mm. I don't even know how many freaking cigarettes That's a lot
1: of cigarettes. Yeah. Now how much is that? God,
0: that would have been – A carton. Approximately. Now. Now.
1: I need a carton of cigarettes!
0: That'll be $600. (laughs) Actually, um... It's a
1: job, not a career, so people don't take the problem seriously because it's a job that you do just, like, to make ends meet, or because you're in high school, or because you're poor and you don't matter.
0: And a thing we didn't touch on last time that I think is important to touch on now. At this point, by 1985, 1986... Everyone probably knows a plaid pantry clerk in their circle of friends and family. You have to have, at this point, based on turnover, because it happens now. Everybody I know in this town knows a clerk or has a friend who's been a clerk. You know what I mean? And it could be, I, I will admit, my circle is... Very much people who work at Plaid Pantry (laughs) and people who are right next door to Plaid Pantry. So, so I'm, I'm biased, but everyone, my my point is everyone knows approximately what's going on, Mm -hmm. right? They know about robberies. They know about, uh, labor theft, which we discussed a little bit in our second episode, right? They know, they know these things are happening, but people in their day to day lives are busy, understandably.
1: It's like the degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon, but even closer.
0: Because instead of Kevin Bacon, it's your responsibility for handling a problem. Yeah. Right. And if you know if you know people are in crisis and it's right, if you see a robbery happen in front of you, you're gonna step in or check on the clerk afterwards or something,
1: or at least be affected by it. Like regardless of you do anything, your that memory is going to stick with you. Yeah.
0: But if it happens to a friend of yours, you're gonna be less involved. And if it happens to a friend of your friend then like, oh, those things happen. Right. And that's kind of where clerks are at 1985-86. Now let's take a weird detour to 1800s France, courtesy of Revolutions podcast and Mike Duncan. And the conditions are set in revolutionary France. The laws state on the or bo- er, post-revolutionary France, the, the laws under one of the Louis, I think it's 18, are such that laborers are allowed to organize and form labor organization. However, the setup, the way industry and businesses work out are such that it's impossible to do that because there's, there's basically each business at this time, the way they function is kind of an individual cell of workers, maybe three to seven people at most working on one thing that gets sent to somebody else to do a thing with that gets sent to a similar group that so there's no real way to organize the say the axle rod union for the overall automobile union does that is what i'm saying
1: i think so 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 this was post revolution in France, yeah, and um, you could make a union. However, because people, it was it because it, like everything was kind of far apart.
0: Yeah, and you're you're very few people, very yeah. far apart, and even if you're all doing the same job, you're doing it at the same time. You don't have a chance to organize. Okay. Does that sound in any fashion like how convenience store workers
1: sounds nothing like it? Yeah, I can't even see a similarity. Okay. I don't know what you're
0: talking about. So in. Over the decades, unions had made approaches to Plaid Pantry work, right? There's not a lot of newspaper sources before 1985 about what happens. One is what I mentioned in the last episode, where the unions get together and sue Plaid Pantry. Because what Plaid Pantry tries to do, I I forgot to go into depth in it, is they try to get rid of breaks.
1: No breaks.
0: Right now, employees have a working lunch. And what that means is you can nominally eat lunch anytime you don't have work to do. But if you go into a plaid pantry, there's always something to do. Something needs to be stocked. A customer needs to be taken care of. Something needs to be cleaned, right? The phone is ringing, whatever. So you you don't really have a lunch. You have a 10-minute break at the start and end of your shift that you share with somebody who gets a 10-minute break at the start and end of their shift. So yes, you get a break, and yes, you get a lunch, but you don't.
1: Yeah, it's... it's, uh, I've always thought about that after having, like, a line job where you're at a restaurant where it's like, there is downtime, but, like, any time there is downtime, you should be doing something else. And it really ruins your ability to chill. (laughs) And also, if you're in an environment that's already unsafe because you're the only person on shift... There's just so many things making it so you can never even have a break from this job while you're at it.
0: And there's one additional business practice I forgot to touch on earlier. Oh, shit. Skeleton crews. Yep. Most plaids aren't operating on enough people to fill in if somebody gets sick. They're operating at the lowest budget possible for labor. So they're assuming the fewest number of people in a store that can keep it up and running are however many people they need. So if that's, five people doing 10-hour shifts, handing it off to each other in weird rotations, the higher up you go in the organization, the less that impacts you and the less you care. Yeah. Because, hey, we're saving money by cutting down on labor costs, but you're making that money instead, right? And by 1985, 1986, this is very apparent that people are operating on skeleton crews they're dealing with a lot of interpersonal violence thanks to the robberies, thanks to the assaults. Not every not every one of these is a Barbara Karenko, but mm-hmm. there are numerous things that veer towards the murder or the sexual assault category as you go along throughout history. Like they just the more time progresses and the more somebody else knows that somebody else did it, the more likely somebody who's inclined to do that is gonna do that. So in 1986, Janine Meyer, a 26-year-old woman, started the Plaid Pantry Union. It was the first union of its kind, and how she did it, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, 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 I read all the newspaper articles, right? I looked her up in the, the surrounding newspapers, and I've tried to find her on the internet since then, and turns out Janine Meyer is a pretty common name, and she could have gotten married since then and changed it. I don't know. This is another one of those instances where I'm kind of reading between the lines about what happened. At that time, phone trees were a thing. For our younger members of our potential audience, a phone tree is like a chain text, except with phone calls.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you get a certain bank of phone numbers, and you call them and relay the information that's been given to you, I'm assuming?
0: Yeah, and then you, and then I have that, and I do that same thing mm-hmm. to a number of people, so that it, it's basically a game of telephone. Right? Oh, it's
1: how they, like, tanked the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. Fucking anti-feminists and their goddamn phone trees and newsletters. Yeah,
0: I I think that's what happened. What really, the important thing is that an outside individual took the effort to organize the individual stores now there's two ways you can unionize a business you can go location by location which works for like let's say you have a mom and pop shop and there's like seven stores if you do that each location spurs on the next location to join it or you can just get a certain percentage of the overall employees involved and they can vote to form the union so each of them has their own benefits and their own disadvantages. So like it's maybe easier to get, I think it's like a third to two thirds of the company to vote on a thing in, in larger spaces. Like it, like it's spread out like plaid was because that's what they did there mm-hmm. was they didn't get any one store unionized. Instead they got enough workers recruited and that's how the union started.
1: Yeah. They, they got a, <clears throat> they got enough percentage. They got enough votes.
0: Um, the reason you won't see this at Seven Eleven is because it's a franchise. Because let's say you unionize a Seven Eleven location, right? Then they just shut it down and sell the franchise to someone else.
1: I heard about that with McDonald's.
0: Yeah, McDonald's is another they'll, example. They'll
1: that- just shut down the whole physical location and build a new one next to it.
0: Yeah, and they're big enough that they, they can do it, right? Like they, they, all right, we lose the money in that location, but we have McDonald's in Thailand, in Australia, in wherever, so we make their money. So what she does is goes to these locations, yes. But she unionizes the whole company and gets a vote company-wide. And the fact that this world first occurs doesn't even make front page of the news. It's like front page of the metro section.
1: Okay, so it's not even like headline news. Yeah. It's getting buried.
0: And so the union eventually, because of conditions, votes to go on strike. He initially kind of is going along with what the union says, says, hey, you guys can vote it into existence. But then they present their demands. So the demands are never being in the store alone, healthcare, healthcare. vacation time.
1: Vacation time, lunches.
0: Lunches and more pay. There was was five key demands, Mm -hmm. right? And I will forget them later on. Remember them yourself, listener. But basically, uh, Pension Eddie is like, no, I can't. I can't give you guys more pay. I can't give you. I'm, I'm not making enough as part of his argument. And the thing.
1: Wait. So I just want to make sure I'm hearing this correctly. He's like, yeah, cool. I'm down for a union. But then when he finds out their demands, he's like, "Mm, that's too much. Yes. Okay. Okay.
0: He's against the demands because it's going to cost a lot of money to do. He
1: felt like he gave them an inch and they went a mile.
0: Yeah. Again, I I cannot stress how often robberies are occurring. There's a point shortly after Barbara Karenko's death where his insurance companies say, look, we're going to stop. Covering your thefts because they are just so numerous and so regular like it's 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 a business expense anymore. It's not an insurance liability.
1: Yeah, no, I mean so, it would be like it, it would be like losing your health insurance because you become too expensive to insure.
0: Yes, that happens to him. That is a perfect. Uh, <laughs> I
1: like, I hate that, you know, like I hate the idea of insurance as a business in general. But the fact that that was like, it's like you're allowing so much theft to happen in your store where you can't cover it. It's like, <laughs> it's just hilarious. I don't, I don't know where I'm going with right. this, but God no, it's, damn. It's,
0: it's very it's and that's my problem with him is that it's very hypocritical in a lot of ways, because there are numerous articles. There's articles that occur in like 1985, maybe a month, maybe a year before uh, the union is even formed, where he's complaining about the unemployment rate and inflation he is the owner of a business which can hire people and which has marked up prices to make profit. And he's complaining about unemployment and inflation. All right. And he's saying the government needs to do something and businesses need to step in. But he is doing neither of those things. And he is in both those institutions. Right. Because he's on the Chamber uh, chamber of Commerce and he's like the easily one of the richest guys in the city.
1: What's going on, Papa John? I thought we had something here.
0: The union forms and they vote to strike. And I think it's important to note the article gives the impression that the labor leaders didn't want to strike. So Janine starts the union in 86 and it's its own union. A little bit short, like before the strike, uh, the 555 United Food and Commerce Workers Union, um, 555 Local, Uh, absorbs the Union into their greater institution. It gives you more power when you do that, because now the people who work at Safeway, the people who work at places like Fred Meyer, are able to join you and support you when you have a strike. Mm-hmm. And when you have a strike, the union will like kind of pulls together some money and sets it up as sort of your war chest on how to handle things. Uh,
1: okay, your do du- the dues that yeah. you pay. That and makes so
0: Janine Meyer is the founder, the 26 year old, th- this woman who does an incredible amount of work and must have like I'm sure it got scary at times, right? She ends up. Oh yeah, okay. she
1: probably got threatened regularly. Oh, I'm
0: sure she hands it off to. Mike here for. He's, he's the guy that ends up taking over the, the plaid union and helps lead the strike. And the impression I got from the article about when the strike began is that he was like, Well, I have to tell you that you can vote to strike, but I would like to negotiate. Like that kind of was the presentation. And the workers were just like, No, we're so sick of this. We're striking. So the strike goes on for seven weeks. It ends in October 17th of 1986. But the strike itself is pretty interesting in how it runs and what they do. Uh, The first thing they do is they picket stores. But it's not every store. It's maybe 10 stores. Uh, By the end of it, it gets up to 33 to 36. Uh, So it gets up to about a third of the company. And the big deal is that the people who strike, you can replace them. Right, because jobs are scarce. Unemployment is high in Mm 1960s, so it's pretty easy for somebody to come in. And additionally, John is a millionaire, and he's got an Italian family, so there's a number of relatives out there and people associated with relatives that he can pay to do a shift under the table or to go in and stock for somebody while they're being a clerk. And in addition, right in the middle of the strike, there's a huge prison break in Salem, that distracts like like the whole state is focused on these inmates that get out and they go on this like wild chase so nobody cares about this the first three to four weeks the story isn't even it's not even front page of the metro Mm. right and then it becomes front page of the metro maybe three or four weeks in and you start seeing as more stores are added but what that tells me reading between the lines that means you're not seeing it on the nightly news. Yeah. That means you're you're noticing that there's people with signs outside of plan. But
1: well, you're not really hearing about it. Yeah. And in
0: 1986, like, we're protesting everything still. I think Reagan is present then. I can't remember. But, but it's not, it's not unique.
1: Well, no, it's Reagan. You're right.
0: Yeah. So it's not unique to see people complaining about things with signs on the streets in the 80s mm-hmm. okay so there's not a lot of the big thing is there's not a lot of community support it's in the last five weeks or so that they are like week six that they get front page news at all and like i said it's a seven week strike
1: they start cooking with gas is what you're saying yeah
0: and it gets canceled it, it gets called off without terms being met without without resolution and the union ends up dissolving in one of my, like, optimistic best-case scenarios, I've talked to the union since then. I was like, hey, I found this story. What do you guys think? Like, what do you guys know? And kind of got a, like, oh, we didn't know from them. <laughs> <laughs> like, they were like, I, I was like, I was like, did you guys know about this thing that you did that's, like, actually kind of historically relevant? Like, it's the first time this thing's... A- nope. <laughs> and the words of Aesop Rock. Cool. Dope. Excellent. But the post-game report of the strike... When they interview Mike, he's very blunt and says, "We did, we couldn't compete with a millionaire. We had a hundred thousand dollar war chest, and hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money, but, but it's not enough. It's not <laughs> millions of dollars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Trigger content warning. Three months later, a woman is sexually assaulted at knife point. God damn it! I have talked to that woman." like found her through the internet i'm that much of a journalist and and i i was like hey i explained who i was i explained what i've been doing and was like i would like to tell your story may i have your permission since you're still here i don't want to make you uncomfortable here's how i found you right so i'm doing this thing people might find you this way maybe up your facebook settings (laughs) right and
1: listen i'm putting a big target on your back
0: but if you don't want it, I will not yeah. mention you. I'll just be like, hey, this this is a common occurrence. Because after this lady, it happens again eight years later. After that lady, another woman is assaulted at knife point. Because people know we're going to be alone when you work there. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the, the thing that made me lose all my respect for Papa John is that he talked to her after it happened. Mm. And he said he was sorry. And he said he wished he could have done anything.
1: Bullshit.
0: And he had the fucking opportunity to do something. Yeah. Right? Like, the one thing the newspaper highlights is that the campaign for why there should be a union and why people should support it was very explicit. Like, they described working at plaid like working in a war zone. So people are hearing this. And you've already had Barbara Karenko happen. Yeah. a, A decade ago. And you've had numerous things happen in between, so you have all the power in this. And situation. you know
1: this is going on, and you you've been told what you can do to make it better, and then you have the audacity to tell a victim, "Oh man, that's so that's baffling right there. Not cool, Papa John. Now now you really are like Papa John because your pizza sucks."
0: So we're gonna spoiler alert. He ends up dying. He's he,
1: dead. He's dead.
0: He got, he's dead. He got cancer in 1988, 89, and passed away. Okay. But along the way, th- this is the real post-game report for this strike, because he has to sell his kind of mansion and move to northern Vancouver before this happens. He moves kind of, kind of to the suburbs. He's he's definitely coded as less wealthy. He loses kind of all of his celebrity. Uh, cachet like people people no specifically longer
1: specifically after this incident with yeah, that a- woman
0: after the strike
1: after the strike okay because... so the strike is what kind of makes him makes him lose face in Portland yeah
0: and it's not it's not explicitly <sighs> that anyone is like screw that guy I think people see the strike happen see that it was broken and then see that there's no change and kind of put two and two together like oh you you just you just waited them out cool right uh, and Portland is, again, we've always had extreme left and right wing people. So they're going to they're going to react very differently to a strike. And some people are going to be in support of the business. Like they're going to be like, yeah, that guy got it over over those thieving employees oh, right?" Goodness. or lazy employees or however, however they need to codify it. But afterwards, he tries to sell the business. And the deal is he he gets wealthy because he owns the properties. And then he makes the profit from the business. And then he also owns the, a distributor that goes to his stores and other stores because he owns a warehouse where he stores things to distribute to his stores. So he has an empire. That's built on the back of these people who said, hey, we just don't want to risk.
1: We just don't want to get assaulted or murdered uh, during our shift. And we'd like to be able to have a lunch. Yeah. Is that is that is that cool?
0: That's all they're asking
1: I'm not going to, like, try to break down the system and say, like, we uh, a boss needs to be making as much as their employee, but, like, what it comes down to it for me is that if people have to get assistance outside of your pay and the benefits that you provide, you are not providing what your employees need for what you're expecting of them. like.
0: Yeah. And, and that's that's that thing we were talking about, about labor theft, where I, I believe it's also a theft from the customer because you're not providing the full service that you said you were.
1: Yeah, I can't provide full service if, like, I can't even afford to go to the doctor if I don't feel well.
0: So when he goes to sell the business, it's very much revealed that he lost a lot of money from the strike because they're just like, there's no money left in the company anymore. Like, it's all when he, when he goes to sell it every he tries to sell it three times before he dies. And every time people look into the books, and they're like, "No, you you lost a lot of money in like 1986 for some reason. <laughs> Your money went and you from-
1: never regained from it. I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah.
0: And so when he passes away, the business gets broken apart and resold. And shortly after that, there is another knife point assault of a clerk who's working alone at night. And our previous lady reached out from the past and was like she saw the news story and was like holy shit they must not have known about all of these things we did and she didn't even know about she knew about the strike but she didn't take part in it because she was a single mother Mm -hmm. right which is a, a situation a lot of people get in they're like i can't quit so she reaches out to the company and says hey in the past this was what people were saying would prevent this from happening and they're like cool thanks and they do nothing about it yeah so, Who Am I comes in at this point. That last, uh, that last assault that I mentioned happened in, like, 93, and then there's semi-regular occurrences, but it stops being newsworthy. And the reason I found out all of this is because at the start of the coronavirus, um, I led a boycott against Clad Pantry as one of the employees. Rochelle was one of the people who helped me, and I'm not going to toot my own horn here. We didn't do a good job. Uh, and in part, it was because there were people who quit or people who got fired. And I wasn't comfortable being responsible for that level of collateral damage in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, you can do whatever the hell you want to me. I'm a cripple who will laugh at God like, just to spite him. So, right. so go ahead. But when there are people who are like, I'm going to be homeless because of this. Like, I couldn't do more than I was doing. And all we wanted was by now, by, by 2020, we had gained, thanks to legislation, insurance. Thanks to legislation, we had vacation time. Thanks to legislation, there was some amount of sick pay. There was still no lunch. And most stores, all stores, still operate on a skeleton. And at the start of the pandemic, they weren't doing anything. There was no barriers, no PPE. There was no, anybody who was going to take time off was going to have to pay for it out of their sick pay and then
1: lose their job.
0: Yeah. Sorry. You can't see me shrugging. That's one of the, that's one of the downsides of this medium,
1: but he's a very quiet shrugger.
0: Their, their response was basically, if you quit, cool. Cause the government's going to give you unemployment. And if you stay cool, cause like if you work overtime over the course of your pay period, we eventually have to pay you for it. Like we don't have to pay you for the overtime in a day. We just pay you for the overtime in the unit. Now I will I will say a couple of things. One, the the insurance package is pretty generous. Like it's 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 superb from what I understand comparatively. Yeah, good insurance. And you don't make minimum wage. You make a little bit more than minimum wage. Usually, it's they they keep it about a dollar an hour above whatever Oregon's minimum wage is. Okay. Right, and you do get the overtime, and there is room for a certain amount of advancement you can i i made assistant manager inside of two years without any trouble i was offered management right before the boycott and i turned it down because i was like i don't want to or no it was right after i'm sorry full of shit it was right after the boycott it was
1: after the boycott they're like cool do you want to be a manager yeah
0: well because because you can't uh you can't start a union if you're a manager you're not allowed to be a part of it so i i was like no thank you because if if anybody picks up they were
1: trying to hamstring you
0: I didn't know about the union at the time, and I actually didn't know about the rule. I was just like, I see what you guys put managers through, which was right. the big revelation from this. So so what we did was we, I ran a stand-up and I used that platform to inform people of the conditions and the fact that there wasn't PPE and there wasn't paid time off. So what we did was stage a boycott and went around to each store. And until they had protective barriers in place, gloves and hand sanitizer, we just asked people not to shop there. And it proved effective enough. Oh, and we asked for, for Hazard. What we ended up getting was the barriers and the glove. And they gave a one-time bonus of X amount for working over the initial course of lockdown and staying with the company. And that's how they framed everything. Because to the stores that we didn't talk to, they didn't hear about us, if that makes sense. So, like, I didn't get to go to Seattle for the boycott. Seattle. I didn't I didn't get in contact with Salem for it either, because it was in Salem. I figured I would stay within my boundary but i don't think the boycott proved particularly effective because you know it was just a boycott we didn't get a full regular pay bump and like there's not hazard pay there there's not they didn't decide to cover our insurance so we should work instead two or three stores had employees who had covid and had to be shut down and fully sterilized mm. and this is all in portland Right, this city that's supposed to be progressive and forward-thinking, and even our Republicans are supposed to be kind of liberal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like our mayor says, our mayor is even willing to say he's a cab, even though he's scared of the police. Like it's right, baby uh, Ted. Sorry, yeah, Yeah, it
1: makes me feel better.
0: Absolutely. I here's my problem with Ted. This is actually my concern. I don't think a union would work because I I think Ted Wheeler would go out of his way to shut it down to a certain Uh. degree. Because, because it's so important to Portland kind of flowing steadily that we have 24-hour convenience stores that I think he would in some fashion step in and shut it down.
1: What a bastard.
0: Uh, and I don't think a boycott overall would actually be as effective, even even on a bigger platform, even if the entire city, because even though they'll have to pay people, there's, again, a lot of people who will go to shop at a store that's still open despite a strike or a boycott because, like, we support small businesses, and, you know, that sort of thing. I think the thing that prevents Plaid or overall convenience store clerks all across the nation from being treated like people is kind of that mentality. It's, it's customer because we're, we've accepted that this is their fate and then we ignore the condition, right? Plaid isn't the only place without a lunch. Mm. Other places are doing that. Or they're saying, cool, you get a lunch, but, like, we're going to take that out of your pay, so there's two places that have come up with what I think are the the best solutions to the problem. I think a union would be awesome. I, I don't want to lie there. I think if the five 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 was willing to be like, "Hey, we'll reactivate this,"
1: it might not be as hard of a fight, right?
0: Yeah, I, like I would I would support them in any way I could. I would love to do that. Like basically, after the boycott, I was like, started doing the research on the history, found out about the old one, found out about why it failed, which was. People kept shopping, right? Yeah. And the business has millions of dollars. Like I don't wanna this is apocryphal information. Like I don't it's dubious sources, but one of the the business presidents, like one of the CEOs now, owns like seven houses.
1: Who needs seven houses?
0: He can lose all of his pay from plaid pantry. And he'd
1: be fine.
0: Which means he can just hire new people out of his money and still be plaid. Or he can walk away
1: mm-hmm. and
0: live comfortably off of the rent of seven houses. All right, and I'm not so extreme.
1: Let's see what his idea of comfy is, though. Fair enough. Let's be honest.
0: And I'm not so extreme as to be like, hey, those are our houses.
1: Those are our houses now. I mean, I feel that way.
0: Maybe one or two. (laughs)
1: Like, at least
0: one or two. All right, but my, my, my huge overarching point, this is all going on in Portland. And the two solutions I have found are in Florida.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah.
0: So the solution, Florida. The document I, I uh, particularly read from was the Multi State Study of Convenience Store Robberies, and it was done by the Justice Research and Statistic Association in, in 1997. All right, so this is obviously after the strike.
1: Wasn't that the year Titanic came out? Maybe. I think
0: so. so I think I think Titanic coming out really overshadowed the findings of the study.
1: I don't know, they might be they might be very connected. <laughs> what well,
0: saying. what the multi-state study of convenience store robberies did was it took all of the previous studies of it did exactly what its name said. It took all the previous studies of convenience store robberies and collaborate corroborated collaborated
1: correlated
0: it took all of these other studies and mixed and matched the data into a n- tasty stew of information. Okay. And that stew had two caveats. Um, they, they researched stores that had been robbed. And they, re- and they interviewed also people who had committed robberies and were in jail. Which means there's two groups of information you don't get. Crimes that aren't reported by the people that they happen to. So individuals who are faking a robbery... To steal for themselves, which happens a lot. That's definitely happening throughout the course of all this too, for sure. Mm-hmm. And the people who don't get caught for robberies. You can't ask a person how they succeeded. Yeah. But what they found out, uh, according to the study, and it looks like it was paid for by the University of Florida. Or it's, it's in Gainesville County is where it's successfully been set up. Two things prevent robberies more than anything else. Having either a security guard on location that is very definitely there to be security, like an armed guard at at the door, right?
1: A good guy with a gun, as Republicans would say.
0: Or an additional clerk. Just Just one more person. Just doing stuff in the store to pick up.
1: One more body,
0: yeah. And according to this study, when you do that, your robberies drop dramatically like they they it's a huge enough statistic that they're like this needs to be done and in fact in gainesville florida it's law now from i think it's 4 p.m to 8 a.m there has to be sort of a free person floating around in the store or a extra employee um they found other things improved safety like better cash handling so if you keep smaller amounts of money less than 75 dollars, and everyone knows about that but that's, again, not nearly as effective as if there's somebody to prevent the robbery. And part of the reason is it increases your risk. Uh, repeat offenders know the law better sometimes than police and some lawyers. And one of the things they know is the more people you commit a crime against, the more yeah. charges you get. So armed robbery against you is one charge of armed robbery. Armed robbery against you and the person next to you is two charges. And it's more of a chaotic element. Mm-hmm. right? So, too many
1: variables.
0: Too many variables. So that's one solution, all right? And that's kind of, it's, it's, I don't, I, I would call that kind of a moderate solution, right? Like, kind of a middle, like, it's, it's, you're legally required to do this. Mm-hmm. And according to managers I've talked to of Plaid, like, area, like, higher-up managers, we could, they could hire an additional person at every store and not even raise prices a nickel. Yeah. All right, so that means your gum that's, like, 95 cents would have to be a whole dollar the next time you go into How the store. How
1: fucking dare
0: you? And I know this from managers because after I led the boycott, there were managers who talked to me about it because they were they wanted to know what I was thinking, why I wanted to do it. Because there, there were people who were like, oh, he's a comedian, he's doing a stunt, and wanted to talk me out of it or whatever. <laughs> so managers tried to talk me out of it, but then heard what I wanted. And the thing is, the managers, uh, management all across, like, I'm not going to go into the minutia of how it's arranged, but they've been making this plea for a while now, at least a decade. You just need to hire more people and they'll be safer, Mm -hmm. right? But that's kind of, I think, a middle ground solution because it's not that sort of leftist, left-ish union solution. It's saying, hey, here's how we can change. The right-wing solution actually was a town with a Republican mayor named Baldwin, That I found out about while reading an article by The Week, November of 2019. And what he decided to do, you remember how we were talking about food apartheid? Uh, There are vast areas in the nation where people don't have access to reasonably cost, effectively nutritious food.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: This mayor bought their local convenience store chain. So it's now a business, it's now a company. That's run by the city. And basically, you know how it's like, there's a very simple equation to what it costs to run the business of you just figure out labor, you figure out products, and then a slight increase. The city owns the properties, Mm -hmm. their city maintained properties, their city employees, which means... It's just part of the city budget that they get paid. They receive the same compensation. They're
1: basically like the concession stand workers. Yeah. (laughs) At a sporting event, but for the whole town.
0: And all of the profit that the company makes just goes right back into the city. Yeah. And because they're doing some amount of labor theft, right? Like they're obviously not going to pay their employees $25 an hour, right? They're paying them whatever the, the city rate for a city employee in this town is. Mm -hmm. Right. Those, I think, are the the kind of three solutions, right, is to either organize the labor force, create laws such that the situation is is just it's illegal to be anything but safe.
1: At least, yeah, like at least have laws on the books that provide more protections for convenience for workers.
0: Or if and here's here's my more leftish take on that, that kind of buying the thing. If they're going to pose a hazard to the public safety and health by being places where robberies assaults and worse can happen why not seize them right as like in danger eminent domain or whatever and be like no these are a public hazard and because they're a public hazard we're going to run them as a public resource as well if yeah. that if that and i know again that's kind of a leftish take
1: i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with that and it you shouldn't feel bad about it cuz i mean it I think it it checks a lot of boxes but like with everything and with every big group there's a likelihood of mismanagement and my thought was specifically to if these are government run what are their stance on prophylactics for sex.
0: Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> Like that
1: was that's like the only thing I thought of. I'm like, so are they going to sell condoms?
0: <laughs> yeah, so there's none of these is a perfect solution.
1: Yeah, obviously. And
0: and really kind of our overall my overall like thesis is that the cost of convenience is human lives. Like, it's very simply, people are getting killed. They're, or worse. I think death, like, I live with constant pain because of my disability. Death seems like a nice break from pain. <laughs> so that that's my point of view, for sure. I don't know what to do. I don't know that I have a solution. The only solution is for people to do anything. And the only way you're going to do something is if you know about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the o- the only way you'll know what action to take is to educate yourself to see what would be the best course of action. And based on what we've talked about over this last week or so, it does sound like a straight up union would be cool, but it sounds like it still would be pretty difficult. And I mean, we, most people are inherently anti-union because it's so baked into capitalism to be anti-union.
0: Like if I, if I could work my will, like, like I was, sorry, I've been thinking about this since we started. Like, what do I want from this? And now that we're at the end, I'm like, what do I want from this? So if I could just work my will, one of the owners, one of the current presidents listens to this. Here's what they're doing to people. And it's like, hey, we need to change it so that these people are living, are, are working for us in humane conditions. And we need to give our customers what they're paying for, which is people having a living wage. Because when I came in to work at Plaid, it was because I liked the community my Plaid gave me. I knew all my clerks; they knew me. They would be like, "Hey, man, are you doing okay?" Over personal story, I had a friend die in my hands. The first person I saw afterwards was actually my local convenience store was my Plaid clerk because I was just I was just kind of in a daze and went and bought like cigarettes or something. And they were like, "Hey, what's up?" and took time out of their day to comfort me.
1: Yeah.
0: And I felt the same way. Like um, I get emotional easy. One of my one of my customers over the pandemic, her wife died of cancer, and like it broke my heart because they were some of my favorite customers. But she was also like, "Hey, you your your attitude made our lives better. So if I could work my will, it would be the the presidents of Clad <laughs> hear all that and are like, you know what? We're gonna take a pay cut. We're gonna redistribute this so that we can hire more people." right? And we're going to raise the amount we give people. We're going to give them free healthcare. We're going to give them childcare. We're going to give them opportunities for advancement within the company that aren't just based on, because a lot of the managerial hiring, and this isn't, this is all what I hear secondhand, but a lot of managerial hiring is um, external. So you, you worked somewhere else and they liked you. So they made you a, a regional manager. Yeah.
1: Cause they're, they're not really interested in, and people who already know what it's like, because
0: if how do know, I put this? If like,
1: you, you, if you know how the sausage is made in a managerial position, you might want to try to advocate for the people below you. But if you're coming in hot, fresh, you do, you don't have that background of knowing how shit the job was for them. And
0: that's 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 a thing that's particularly infuriating to me is I'm not going to name names, but there are two presidents in particular that I know about. One of them got his job because he just flew like Cessna airplanes, like private airplanes. And was friends with another dude who did that. And they were like, yeah, no, you should be president of my company. I'm retiring.
1: Good right. lord.
0: And the other dude, the, the guy that owns all those houses, started as a graveyard clerk and worked his way up. And so it's it's infuriating to me because it's somebody who's never done what we're doing, making decisions for yeah. us.
1: And then another person who has done what we're doing seems to not have the empathy required to make it a, a, a livable job. You and know cuz like we talk about livable wages but like your job shouldn't make you want to die and shouldn't fucking endanger you and it sounds like yeah. the pantry that's what you're dealing with
0: And right now if you go into stores currently uh, at, at this point in 2001, you're going to see stores
1: 2021
0: 2021 Jesus Watch sorry. out Sorry I've been I've been off of work for about 6 months because of the like this isn't this isn't medically confirmed but if I've been standing for 8 hours a day and I'm missing three vertebrae, eventually those two things aren't going to work well together. Right. right. I need a place to sit. Yeah. And their, their logic for why they don't have chairs was people might watch their phones. All of that aside, if you go into a store now, what you're going to find is oftentimes clerks that are working 10 to 12 hour shifts and managers that are working seven days a week sometimes. I know of at least one who works 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Because that's what keeps her store profitable.
1: Good lord.
0: So, if I if, if I could get one wish granted, it would be that these men who have plenty of wealth redistribute it and make their company something that actually is a positive force in the community.
1: Yeah, that that's what I was thinking, was that convenience stores... I don't want to say lifeblood, because that's disgusting, but they are integral parts of communities, especially for... The folks who can't, don't have the ability to travel great distances and do, and, uh, have other limitations because you have a corner store right there and it's gonna have things that you can take and go and eat, do whatever. And it's a real shame that the people who are in those play, like in those positions like these presidents are have the ability to foster quality community like Papa John did in the beginning, you know, and like potentially try and make things better and reinvigorate the community. And it just seems like, They're not even paying attention anymore. Yeah.
0: Here's the thing they don't do anymore that they used to do. He used to offer rewards for unsolved assaults and murders. Like, out of his own pocket, like, I'll pay a grand or whatever. Oh, wow. And, like, my reaction is, well, you've got a million dollars. If you give me a million dollars and ask for a thousand dollars back, I'm still a millionaire. So. Yeah. Not much of a thing, but it's something. Yeah. My final take, too, is I was joking about calling this the communist solution. Communism isn't the solution because even like, let's say tomorrow we wake up and the workers own everything and it's, everything's equal and fair. People I think are still going to look down on the corner store employee and and be fine with them working alone because Mm -hmm. they don't consider all of the, all of these other extraneous, all extraneous. Yes. Extraneous stressors. That's kind of the other cost of convenience. It, 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 has a human toll.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so before we go, I want to say some some thanks to you. Thank wow. you very much. I want to thank everybody who participated in the boycott. If you listen to this, uh, just go give a fuck about your clerk. Like, just let them know. Like, like, don't be weird about it. But like... Yeah,
1: don't be weird about it.
0: And a big thank you to all of the clerks and people whose lives have been impacted by the boycott and by helping me gather my information we're gonna try to follow it up either with some interviews with clerks or maybe kind of do a cleaner polished version of this uh but again thank you for listening and uh good night deuces <laughs> it's so loud and <laughs> don't burn no, no, I didn't. it, I, I put it over.
1: So Patrick wanted me to let you folks know that uh, I sell art- artwork and I do. I predominantly do pour painting, which is the most uh, elegant way of saying I have ruined uh, my chances of getting my deposit back at my apartment. If you folks are interested in looking at the visual art that I have created, um, you can go to at poor on Instagram. So W-H-O-R-E. F-O-R-P-O-U-R. Yeah, I spelled that right. Uh, And you can see my artwork. At this time, I'm not really interested in doing commission. But if there's a piece that's listed for sale, just send me a direct message and we'll see what we can do about getting that in your hands.
0: This is the credit portion of the Cost of Convenience podcast. Unless otherwise specified, all information was obtained through the Oregonians Historical Archive or by personal experience. We were recorded by Rochelle Cody. We were edited by Patrick Thomas Perkins, who also supervised and researched. Uh, after I edited it, I realized that I had a few thanks that I hadn't given when Rochelle and I recorded, and I wanted to do so now. The first one is to my son. Thank you very much. I love you. I appreciate all the help you've been. I would like to also thank Julia Bemis, Mae Dustin Abels, and Baby James for being amazing co-workers while I was at Plaid Pantry. I would also like to thank Ash Alexander, Crystal Kordowski, and Jaron Wales for their assistance with the research. I have a lot of personal friends I should thank, but in particular I would like to make note of Joe Hieronymus, Tony Burgess, Alison Beckwith, and Chelsea Margaret and Lion Mermaid, who were a great deal of support. Uh, and I'd like to thank the comedy community, because people wouldn't have heard about the boycott if it wasn't for you guys. In particular, I'd like to thank for that Jane Malone, Belinda Carroll, and Core Coheen. Thank you, Dirty Angel, as well, in particular, Courtney and Tyrone Collins. If you would like to say thank you to me, uh, I am currently disabled, unemployed, and not on disability or unemployment. Uh, and if you'd like to support me financially, you can... Venmo at Patrick Thomas Perkins, Cash App at PTP Mister Meglamania, that's PTP M R M E G L O M A N I A, or PayPal at Patrick Thomas Perkins, all one word. Once again, thank you, and please don't forget the cost of convenience.